Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. All right, everybody, how you doing? Welcome to the Other People Show. My name is Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. Appreciate you tuning in. And very pleased to share today's episode with you. My guest is Melissa Phoebos. She's an old friend of mine, and I've talked with her before on this show, and I'm delighted to have her back. She is celebrating the publication of a new essay collection called Girlhood out on Bloomsbury. It is a national bestseller. Very happy for Melissa Phoebos. She is now uh, an associate professor at the University of Iowa which is a relatively new development. She's teaching in their nonfiction writing program. Her other books include the critically acclaimed memoir Whip Smart and another essay collection called Abandon Me, which was a Lambda Literary Award finalist back in 2017. Melissa also has a craft book due out next spring on Catapult. It is called Bodywork. So my conversation with Melissa Phoebos uh, is coming up momentarily. And once again, her new essay collection is called Girlhood. Today's episode is brought to you by Restless Books, publisher of the award-winning new novel Catch the Rabbit by Lana Bostasich. Catch the Rabbit is a hypnotic novel set in post-war Bosnia. It's about a couple of female friends on a road trip in search of a long-lost brother. Catch the Rabbit is about how we remember the past. It's about all the ways in which two people can hurt and misunderstand one another. Alexander Heyman calls it, quote, smart, energetic, passionate, announcing a major talent. And Publishers Weekly, in a starred review, says, quote, this unforgettable tour de force surprises at every turn. Catch the Rabbit by Lana Bostasic, available now from Restless Books. All right, so let's get to the conversation and uh, Melissa Phoebos, shall we? Her new essay collection, Girlhood, is available now from Bloomsbury, a national bestseller. And uh, just love talking with her. I hope you enjoy this. Here she is, folks. This is Melissa Phoebos. I don't know what I was expecting. Maybe like... uh, I don't know, defensiveness or whatever, the more often reactions that I, that I hear, but despair (laughs) is so sympathetic. Um, Do you think that that response 
was that your response before you had a daughter? Uh, I think I've been different people at, at different turns in my life. I can recall having conversations with female friends of mine where, you know, it's the whole, uh, not all guys. And, you know, like, let me just give, let me try to narrow this down into like one specific example, because I think it'll be useful for the conversation and for listeners, but catcalling. I have never in my recollection witnessed a man catcall a woman. Really? Ever. That's how we know you live in LA. (laughs) Maybe. I mean, but I just, I just, I mean, maybe I've seen somebody like, you know, say, Hey baby out of a car window or something, but like, it's just such a disconnect between my little narrow channel of experience and the experience of pretty much all women that you mm-hmm. go out in public and like almost out every day you're living in New York city, right? Or, or you were living in New York city. You go out yeah. in a city like that every day, someone, at least one per one guy is going to say something to you. Oh yeah. More than for sure. I mean, I am 40 now and things have changed in a really interesting, much better way being older. Um, but for, you know, I lived in New York. I'm in Iowa city now, but I was in New York for 21 years. And I would say if it was only one dude, something was up. It was like a bank holiday or something, you know, where I was, I went out really early in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I wonder if it has to do, I don't know. Yeah. It makes me, it makes me, makes me curious about how men might censor themselves in front of other men. You know, if they're not the sort of men that they're performing for, it's interesting. Or if it's just like not visible, because it is often, it's not yelling. You know what I mean? It's a, it's a quieter sort of exchange. And like, and it's like, it's just like smile. Like, what do they say? They say things like smile Smile or like, or just noises like, (laughs) like, like you would call a cat or something like little clicks and whistles and hisses or just like, hi. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Okay. Hi. I can get behind to it. But certainly there's like a certain kind of exchange that would be like, uh, like an exchange I had no hundreds of times in New York over the years um, would be, are you married? Do you have a boyfriend? And if the answer was yes, as it just, is because you want them to go away. Uh, like saying I'm a lesbian is not going to work at all. It's only going to inflame the situation. <laughs> so saying yes, then are you happy? Are you allowed to have friends? Do you need a friend? Like just, there's like a, a script. Um, yeah. And hopefully you just get far enough away by the time the script ends for the conversation to end. But I've had men follow me into stores, out of stores, into a second store. Like, yeah, really, really intense stuff. Wow. I once, when I lived in uh, Bushwick, I had, I lived right down the street. I mean, this was just like an abomination for many reasons, but I lived down the street from like the garage for the ice cream trucks. And I was sexually harassed on a daily basis by the drivers of ice cream trucks. Oh my God. All summer. Every <laughs> I just remember walking 
my dog down this like relatively, you know, it's a really industrial neighborhood and walking my dog down this like pretty sketchy, super industrial, no one else around like at dusk and this ice cream truck with the lights off, slowing down and driving very slowly behind me and turning on like their music, like pop goes the weasel super slowly and low. It was like a horror movie. Oh my you know? God. Are you triggered by yeah. this to this day? Like if you see an ice cream truck, are you okay? <laughs> I mean, I do. It, I mean, it, I, I, yeah. Cause, I mean, that was more less about the sexual harassment than just how obnoxious it was to be listening to ice cream truck music 24 seven. Yeah. Just all the, well, and also know. just like the horror movie trope, like I'm creeped out by yeah. ice cream trucks and <laughs> I wasn't even sexually harassed, you know, but yeah. Um, yeah. I gotta, I gotta ask just because I'm anticipating this from a, a dude perspective, there's guys listening who are probably thinking to themselves like, okay, but if you want to meet a woman, like you find somebody attractive or someone's interesting, like, what do you say? Like, what is an okay way to approach somebody? Like, I think making the clicking sounds we can all agree is weird. <laughs> um, saying hello like, it can feel fraught. I've been that guy. Like, a, a well-intentioned, socially awkward, nervous, insecure. And, like, it's very easy to come off the wrong way just because you're a dork, not because you have any ill intent, right. you know? Right. So, I don't know. It, like, it's just – it feels perilous because I totally get that, like, we have, I mean, now that I've, you know, sort of uh, – awakened to what you guys are dealing with on a daily basis. Like I can, I can understand how you'd have your guard up, but it's also like, I don't know, man. It's like, it creates a, like, there's a lot to work through. Do you know what I'm saying? Like yeah, it, it, cre I do. it creates a, a tense, like uh, atmosphere or like a difficult situation to parse. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I'm sympathetic to that, uh, at least to an extent. And I think, I think it's really just, and this is something that I definitely sort of get to at parts in the book is like paying attention to cues, right? Like if you say hi and the woman ignores you and keeps walking, like do not follow her. <laughs> she is not interested in conversation. Um, so that's and, how that works. Okay. Yeah. It's just like ignoring or even just to like, like I'm not a put like saying hi, nodding people. I have now learned outside of New York city, just do this. And it's just being friendly, just like random. My neighbors wave when we pass each other driving or walking or what, you know? Um, but like in New York, people generally don't say hi unless they have some kind of agenda. And if, you know, there are myriad ways we can signal to people that we're interested or, or open to their agendas um, and ways that we're not. And so if someone says hi or waves or nods or whatever, I've also had men pay me a compliment on the subway that felt good. There are ways of like doing that kind of thing that feel respectful, you know, and not uh, scary or intrusive. Yeah, you know, like I'm thinking now, like the other night I was walking my dog and it's like relatively safe where I live in Los Angeles, but there's crime all the time. Like we've got, uh, you know, all sorts of messes in this city. And um, I, there was a woman, I kind of was like, you know, I'm walking down the sidewalk with my dog. A woman sort of like turns in front of me and is like five feet in front of me. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? So it mm -hmm. was like, mm -hmm. it was, you know, she suddenly appeared and then suddenly I was like at close range behind her. And then because I'm like awkward, I like sped up to pass her 
because I was like, <laughs> you know what? She's going to feel better if I'm in front of her rather than me being like, you know, five feet behind her. But then in the passing, I felt like I weirded her out. And then I turned around and explained myself. I was like, I was just, <laughs> I was like, I was just trying to pass you so that I wouldn't be behind you. And she was like, okay. And then just like went to her door. She happened to like live right there, but I was like trying to do the right thing. I would actually appreciate that and find it pretty charming. I mean, you know, after the moment where I thought you might assault me. <laughs> and I had a man I, up swiftly behind you. Yeah. I had the dog, really, which I felt like the dog was like a softener. You know, like I feel like the dog, hopefully. Totally. I might even be my, you know, sort of uh, fight or flight response might be entirely diffused by the presence of a dog, in fact. Because I just, you know, like my instincts would be at cross purposes because I am so excited to see any dog that I ever see that. And I also like who brings their dog to go, you know, (laughs) predating. (laughs) Well, okay, okay. So let's because, you know, as I've gotten more sensitive in in just, you know, really, to be honest, like I, I feel like I've gotten a lot more sensitive to this sort of stuff over the past few years. One thing I've noticed, and I joke about it, but it's true, is that during the day, uh, because I'm a fair-skinned, like, uh, you know, man, I have to protect my skin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I wear, like, a, a straw hat. <laughs> and uh, it's, like, a big, goofy straw hat that, like, the guy, mm-hmm. you know, like that, like, you wear to, like, do yard work. You know what I'm saying? But I wear it mm-hmm. everywhere. Mm-hmm. And not only do I like it because it, like, you know, it protects me. I don't have to feel anxious about getting sunburned or whatever, but like people and women in particular, way nicer to me when I'm wearing that hat. Yeah. Yeah. You probably strike a somewhat ridiculous figure with the big straw hat. <laughs> My friend, uh, I think we have a common friend, Melissa Broder. Um, I was telling her this and she's like, yeah. And I think I was like maybe wearing the hat. She's like, no one is raping in that hat. <laughs> <laughs> And it's true. Like, I feel like, okay, so this is me like signifying that like I'm harmless, like I'm a harmless guy in a straw hat. And I like it for that reason, because I was like with my kids at the beach. I don't know. Maybe I was like away from them. So it was crowded. So like it wasn't clear that I was in dad mode. I was just standing there and like it's Los Angeles. So people don't say hi here either. But I had that hat on and like a woman, like, you know, relatively close to my age, just like said hello and just like chatted in a friendly kind of Midwestern way. I'm from Indiana. So Mm -hmm. I, you know, and I was like, Oh wow, that doesn't usually happen. And then I was like, I'm wearing the fucking hat. She felt okay. (laughs) So it's, you just put the hat on and you basically become a eunuch. Yes, (laughs) exactly. But I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of true. And it's also kind of sad that that's what it takes. You know, you got to wear, you know, so guys out, you know, if you're out there and you, you know, are noticing that people or women tend to be scared of you, get a straw hat and, and a dog and see what happens. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to think, I think I would feel, it would definitely make me feel safer. It takes, too. it takes the threat level down, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I yeah. think, I think it, uh, I don't know what it does. Maybe it makes me seem domesticated or something, but. Um, or gay. Or gay. <laughs> With that too, you know? <laughs> hey everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns 
depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Um, so I want to talk about like the larger literary project that you have undertaken um, over the past several years, kind of since we've known each other. Like we, we talked for your first book. We talked for your second book. We're talking for this book. I'm not missing anything, am I? No, no. I, in fact, I was... This morning, I was just remembering our first conversation, which was, I believe, the second episode ever of yes. this podcast. Jonathan Evanson yes. is the only person who beat me to the punch. And I remember exactly where I was and what I was doing. I was like making baba ganoush in my kitchen, which now seems like profoundly unprofessional for a <laughs> podcast interview. But afterwards, I remember thinking... God, what an easy person to talk to. I can't believe I said all of that. Should I email him and ask if he can edit it out? And I was like, fuck it. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I haven't listened. I could, you know, I used to listen and I'm sure I did back in the day. I would listen to the playback to try to like figure out how to be better or whatever, but I'm at the point now where I can't. And if I listen to old episodes from like a decade ago, A, like I feel like I'm shouting a lot. I, like, <laughs> I used to do ad reads where I was like, why am I yelling? You know, and it's this thing on. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I, I think like the, the point that I want to make um, in sort of thinking back on previous books and previous conversations is that I feel like with girlhood, I'm like, it, it, she's unpacking herself. Like, you know, you've, and I don't know if it's finished. Like, do you have a sense that there's more in you? that we haven't read about yet in a book or I don't know. I feel like this was kind of like a missing puzzle piece mm -hmm. and, you know, maybe in ways that weren't necessarily apparent to you until you started writing these essays, uh, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. So yeah. is like, I mean, is this it? I mean, do I get a sense like, like, is this like the third piece of a completed puzzle, I guess is what I'm wondering. I actually get that sense. I mean, my own curiosity about myself is not to be underestimated. So who <laughs> knows? Um, I thought I was probably done after Abandon Me. Now that seems, I can see how that was wrong, but I do feel like this was the final piece in a sort of triptych, you know, where I was sort of working my way back to this material with the first two books actually. And you know, it's funny cause I'm working on a new book length, nonfiction, like somewhat personal narrative driven book, but it's unlike, it's not really about the past. It all takes place in adulthood. It's funny. I don't even want to say that and jinx myself because I am not a funny writer, but, um, but I started writing it and it was so fun and sort of easy to be kind of lighthearted. I was like, Oh, I really did finish a big piece of work that I think I can sort of move on from now. 
Yeah. Well, no, it feels that way to me. Like re like reading it and knowing you, I was like, oh wow, this is interesting. Like these are the foundation. These are kinds of foundational pieces that make the other books crystallize in new ways. Hey, everybody, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Realm, the audio entertainment company that creates original fiction podcasts, including official continuations of popular franchises. These are high-quality productions, you guys, from story to editing to sound design. They have it all. It's like Game of Thrones for your ears. Right now, Realm is proud to present Orphan Black, the next chapter starring Emmy-winning actress Tatiana Maslany. This is the official continuation of the hit TV series. All is not well. Dangerous genetic technology is stolen. A mysterious unknown clone appears and goes rogue. Chaos ensues. Sarah, Allison, and Cosima, the original clone club, they're forced to step out of the shadows and publicly claim the secret they've sacrificed everything to protect. The future of all clones hangs in the balance. Oh my God. That's Orphan Black, the next chapter available now wherever you get your podcasts. The season finale goes live on June 11th, and season two launches in October. Comicbook.com calls it, quote, a truly thrilling sequel that captures the mystery, humanity, and heart of the original series. That's Orphan Black, the next chapter, available from Realm. For more information, check out realm.fm on the internet or follow along on social at Realm Media, Orphan Black, the next chapter available now, wherever you get your podcasts. I thought too, um, it's right there on the page in this book where you're reflecting uh, on the time you spent working as a dominatrix. And I don't know, I guess I'm, I'm recalling the passage where you're talking about how your attitude toward that job changed through the years. And you got to a, a point where you were kind of disgusted with it and I don't know, just little bits and pieces where you're sort of like remembering and seeing it through the lens of girlhood um, mm -hmm. that, mm -hmm. I don't know, made Whip Smart new to me in a way. I mean, mm -hmm. did, you, did, you, did you get that in the writing of girlhood? Yeah, I absolutely did. And, it, you know, in some ways, I think my first two books were taking experiences that I was having as an adult, Whip Smart in particular, and looking somewhat at my past, but mostly looking sort of outward at the culture. Um, and, and there was a lot of information there, right? Um, but in this book, I felt like I had sort of clarified my relationship to the things that I keep returning to, which are, you know, my experience in sex work, my definitely my experience with addiction and recovery, my experiences in, as a person who has fallen in love a lot. Um, and like I did a certain amount of work on those topics at the site of, of the most notable experiences. And once I had sort of clarified my relationship to them in some way, I think I was finally able to go back and look at sort of the foundation that primed me for those experiences, which is not, I don't mean to suggest in like a pathologizing kind of way, um, but sort of looking at how they sit within the larger context of my sort of development as a person. And then, which I think really enabled me to look, go back to sort of looking at the larger context of the culture and see that even more clearly than I had before. Hmm. Yeah. Your depictions of your childhood, like uh, a couple things. Like, first of all, I found myself loving how feral 
if that's a word I could use, your childhood yeah. was like how close I to nature. I use that word. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like close to nature. You know, I kind of grew up, especially when I was in Wisconsin, uh, for the first half of my childhood in a kind of similar way, just like running around in the woods and, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know, like swimming in the Creek and all that kind of stuff. It was a good way to grow up. And I related to it on that level. I've also never been to Cape Cod. So I was like, Oh, I kind of want to go there now, like swim in those kettle ponds or whatever. It seems like a mm-hmm. good place. I, I, this is totally a digression, but as someone who has now lived, I'm talking about you on the West coast, a fear will, will be a magnificent disappointment. The Atlantic, if you don't forge a relationship to it before you fall in love with the Pacific, then it doesn't, the, the comparison does not favor it. It's very small and cold and rocky and But you great. gotta, you gotta understand, like we go, my wife is from Minnesota originally and we go back up there in the summer and it seems exotic like i love it i mean not exotic because i grew up in that same milieu so maybe it seems like nostalgic too but it's like that green lush Mm -hmm. thunderstorms rain like you know Mm -hmm. we're down for that like i don't know if i'd want to live there but i'd go i'd go to cape cod for a couple weeks in the summer yeah yeah it is nice we're headed there yeah on tuesday for a whole month actually so and as someone who's now in the midwest uh, I, I similarly find the weather here really exotic and kind of romantic in a way that I'm sure people who are from here do not. It seems like I'm avoiding talking about my book. I'm like, let's talk about the weather. <laughs> but I'm catching you, to be fair, I'm catching you after basically at the end of your tour. So you've been talking about your book for the past, like what, six weeks solid at least. It's true. I don't mind. I don't mind. I, I'm just excited to be talking to you. I love talking to you. Well, likewise. Uh, I want to ask you, you know, I guess about the depictions of the boys in your adolescence, especially the bad boys, you know, the ones who harmed you in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, here's what I, because I've been reflecting on my own youth and my own treatment of girls when I was an adolescent and trying to navigate the terrain between like bad behavior, bad impulses, awkwardness, fear, being drunk, Mm -hmm. you know, when you're a teenager, just being a goofy, sloppy mess of a human Mm -hmm. and not knowing what to do. Um, Mm -hmm. And then there's, then there are, I think people who are genuinely troubled and predatory. Uh, And I, I guess it's like trying to parse that line and and i'll give you an example and it's a really troubling example but it'll kind of bring it into relief i think like uh there was a party i did not go to this party when i was in high school but there was a party that i everyone sort of found out about on monday morning you know Mm -hmm. at, at my public high school in indiana and basically a girl got really drunk and everybody was really drunk and this girl wound up hooking up to put it mildly with like several guys at the party. Mm-hmm. Um, and I look back on it now, like sadly I didn't see it sooner, but I look back on it now. I'm like, well, that is fucked up and like possibly grounds for arrest, you know, but at the same time, and, and by the way, it traumatized this girl. Like she was mm-hmm. wrecked by it. Um, I look back on it with some compassion in the sense that like everybody was like 16 and like hammered. 
I, I don't know. You know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. am I, am, am, mm-hmm. I a, am I a bad person for not, for being like, well, you know, I don't think everybody should be locked in prison for 30 years for this, but I think like, Oh, sure. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think about things similarly and I do think there are definitely, you know, bad actors, but that's not most people. That's not most boys. And, and in fact, you know, it's interesting. I've been thinking about this because I'm going back to the Cape where I grew up, where all of the childhood parts of this book took place. And, you know, there are some, some characters who, uh, might be recognizable to some other people who grew up there, you know? Um, and I've gotten some messages from people I like went to school with who have read the book and, it makes me nervous because I, as an artist, I, I wasn't really thinking, I was just trying to sort through the experiences and the ideas and the conditions that primed us all for them. But I, I think actually, even in my depictions of these events, there are very few of them where I think that was a bad person or that guy was a, predator. I mean, you know, there's predatory behavior, but mostly I look back, especially now as like a full adult, like the boys I'm writing about are like 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 years old. Like those are children. Like those are kids. You know, I can see that more now than ever before. And, and we were all in it. You know what I mean? Like those we were all in this sort of murky soup of patriarchy and compulsory heterosexuality, none of us having any awareness, most of our parents having no awareness, the schools, you know, so there are, we were all sort of participating and the adults were all in many ways enforcing a lot of those sort of dynamics, but none of us invented them. Um, Most of us were not making clear, a clear choice to sort of override the better interests of the other person. It was just how we did things, you know, like even now the language we have around consent um, and sexual assault, like there was just, there was like violent rape and then there was sex. Like that was sort of it. Like, I don't even remember anyone talking about like date rape um, until I was quite a bit older, you know? So there's just like, wasn't even a language for it. And you know, I think where I ended up in writing about those experiences, like those early sexual interactions where, you know, I did things I didn't want to do that I did not enjoy and that stayed with me for a very long time. Um, I don't think anyone did anything wrong in those situations. I just think we live in a fucked up society where, you know, many girls are not equipped with the inner sort of resources to say no, it just doesn't feel okay to say no, you know, or to extricate yourself from a situation once you've said yes to something, you know? And so I actually look with like a lot of sympathy at, at at most of the other kids I was interacting with at that time, even in terms of like the pretty horrible, like sexual harassment I experienced in school. It's like kids, I don't know, you know, it happens so often and there's just not there wasn't any guidance for how to handle any of that. There were no adults who stepped in. I'm sure a lot of it they saw, you know, my parents certainly would have if I'd gone to them, but like the shame kicks in so quickly with stuff like that, that it's just a perfect setup to not ever receive any help navigating it for, for any party, you know? Yeah, no, I I think that 
you do a really nice job of drawing the line from uh, desire to fear to anger. Am I missing a step? Like, I think that's I mean, it. probably in some situations, but yeah, that seems like the, the sort of trajectory. Yeah. You know, when you're dealing with boys and male, mm -hmm. male mis mm -hmm. misbehaviors, you have a guy who's interested, but he's afraid and awkward and then he gets rejected and how quickly that can turn into, yeah. you know, being an asshole. Um, yeah. You know what I rewatched recently? Um, I've been rewatching some movies from the nineties and let me tell you, these movies did not age well. I rewatched high fidelity, uh, with John Cusack, which was a movie I loved. It was like among, it was one of my favorites. Right. And there is this part where, you know, he's going back through his history of ex-girlfriends and there's this ex-girlfriend that, uh, he had in high school who he sort of like tried to coerce into sex and she refused and then they broke up and then she slept with another guy afterwards. And it's just like a horrible, really familiar story where she's basically like, I really liked you. I got tired of saying no because it felt like I wasn't supposed to. And he's like, awesome. It had nothing to do with like, it, he becomes this incredibly unsympathetic. She's basically like, and I think the line in the script is like, it wasn't right, but it wasn't that far off. And he's like, oh, fantastic. None of this had anything to do with me. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> and I mean, that movie was also made like, you know, 20 years after I was even experiencing my early sexual, you know, interactions. And so like, if you sort of degrade the conversation we were having about that stuff all the way back to like 1991 or whenever I was like having my first sort of sexual interactions. It's like, how in the hell could any of us have been expected to sort of navigate that with, with, I don't know, any kind of awareness about what was going on with the other person. And there were so many scripts about, even I remember like my dad saying to me, you cannot trust boys, like stay away from the, basically making all men and boys seem like horrible gargoyles, like sex crazed <laughs> ghouls. And, and I think that's what he, part of what he was trying to describe to me is what was true, which is like, it is set up. You'll, you'll be the loser in this situation, no matter what, like avoid it entirely. There is no way to sort of come out okay from those early interactions. And I don't think he really sort of knew that lucidly, you know, but I think he sort of understood that it was like not a good situation for girls. However, it sort of broke, you know? Um, how, how do you feel about that now? Like, cause like I, I, you know, I selfishly, I'm like, okay, I'm a dad. I've got a daughter. She's 10. She mm -hmm. went to like a pool party with boys this weekend <laughs> mm -hmm. and on her way out the door. And I, I am so, cause she's been our little girl for the past decade and now it's going to change and it's inevitable and I'm happy for her and you know, kids have to grow mm -hmm. up. I don't want to be too clinging, you know, too tightly to, to wanting things to be permanent, you know, and fixed, but uh, it's Did hard. you just zip up your sweatshirt more as yeah. you were talking? <laughs> yes, I'm, <laughs> I'm just going to put my hood on. I'm going to put my hood on while I talk about this. I talk about this. You don't mind. <laughs> but it's like, it's so heartbreaking. And she was walking out the door and again, awkward. I was like, hey, I was like, don't take any shit from any boys. Like kind of joking. 
And she's like, mm-hmm. okay, dad. I was like, don't you take any shit from any boys? You know, just sort of like, I don't, yeah. and, and like, then she left and I was like, is that the right thing to say? Like, I don't want to like load her up with fear, but like, I want her to be strong, you know? And I yeah. want her to have, like, yeah. I want to try to communicate, but man, I have not nailed down exactly how to approach this stuff, like with her oh. and how to make sure she's as prepared as she can be, you know? Like, I don't know what to do. Yeah. It's, I mean, that, that sounds like a, it sounds like you're doing a great job. Um, and I think the sort of primary issue is that there's nothing any dad can do to fix the culture. (laughs) You know what I mean? So like probably some fucked up shit is going to go down. Hopefully not very fucked up, just like a little bit fucked up. Um, (laughs) and there's really nothing you can do about that. Um, I do think like, I, I do actually have some pretty clear sort of ideas and hindsight about where interventions might have actually been helpful because I had really sweet parents who were very like, you know, you, you're, you deserve respect and you should respect your body and, um, and who would have intervened and been happy to talk to me if I had been at all capable of that, but it was too late, you know? And I think sort of the thing that might've helped more is that once stuff started happening is that response where it was like, I already was like confused and ashamed and feeling bad about my body and feeling like I was getting into situations that I didn't know how to navigate. And my parents like who were mostly afraid, but were also frustrated and mad at me because I was putting myself in situations that, that scared them. Right. And so I think like some kind of conversation, which I don't think they would have been capable of. Cause like I said, nobody was having these conversations about like it being okay to say no at any point, at any point. It's like the, the cuddle party essay in the book, like oh those God. rules Yeah. Like for kids to have those rules. And I honestly think it's actually like, would be even more or just as useful for people to be talking to their sons about the like, thank you for taking care of yourself aspect of it, because that was a huge thing, you know? Um, and just like, yeah, it's fucked up. It's confusing. Like they tell you to say no, but then if you don't, you're the one who gets sort of humiliated in school the next day, or you get a bad reputation or just sort of having a conversation basically about patriarchy and like, how it's sort of set up in a messed up way for girls to have to navigate. And um, I don't know, having those conversations like as early as possible, you know, because by the time I was in those situations, it was kind of already too late. And for me, that was like 11, 12. Um, And it was already like the ball was already rolling and I already had so much shame about it that like having those conversations felt like excruciating, you know? So you're telling, you're telling me I got to do that this year. I got to sit her down and yeah, yeah. And just yeah. be, but I mean, uh, not to be too <laughs> tedious about it, but just be like, honey, like you can always say no. Like mm-hmm. I'm trying to figure out what to say. <laughs> like I, I think it's like, it's okay to experiment and it's also okay to stop it at any point. And anyone who tries to pressure you into anything is not cool. Like that's not cool. Right. You know? And if they try to make it feel like you're being not cool. That's extra not cool. Do you know what I mean? That, um, that like that, just like giving her a model for how that interaction should go. If she's into it, if she's not into it, if she's kind of into it and then changes her mind, like what are, and I have to say, like, even as an adult, I have had trouble. This is like, uh, 
feels like a tangent, but I think it's actually related. Like I have been horrible at breaking up with people my whole life, like awful. Um, and part of it is like, I don't want anyone to be mad at me. I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. I don't want it to be awkward. And some of that goes all the way back to that same sort of dynamic where it's like, you don't want to stop in the middle of a makeout session because you're, you've hit the threshold that you're comfortable with. And it seems easier to just grit your teeth and do whatever they want to do so that you can get out of it without a conflict. And, um, and I had a friend who was like, you've got to deal with this. Like I was dating someone and I wasn't that into it. And I was like, how do I extricate myself from the situation? And we did a little role play. This is me like in my thirties. And my friend was like, come up with a line that you can just repeat so that you don't have to be figuring it out. And my line was, it just doesn't feel right. And she was like, no matter what the other person says, you just say, it just doesn't feel right. And then they will have to give up and you don't have to like be navigating or negotiating. And like it worked perfectly. I, it was the first successful breakup I'd ever had where it actually just ended and they didn't talk me back into like something else. Um, and I remember thinking if I had been a kid and I had had this kind of tool where it's like, you just say this until they go away, <laughs> you know what I mean? Or you just say this and you walk away. But like, there are so many messages that are encouraging us to do something else that, that are encouraging girls to keep doing it or whatever that like, I would have had to really sort of learn those skills before I was in those situations. Um, so like, what do you do? I mean, this would probably be torture for her even now, but like, what do you do if you're like fooling around a little bit and then you just kind of want to stop and go home? Like, what do you say? And like really walking through that. Cause in the moment it's so hard. It's well, really hard. Yeah, I was just going to say it. Like, it almost seems like a good idea in schools for there to be role play. Like, however uncomfortable it may be and, yeah. the, you know, how much giggling there would probably be and blushing. Like, I think you're yep. right. I think when you get into the heat of the moment, we don't have language for these things. Mm -hmm. And they're, you know, mm -hmm. it's easy for things to get tangled and, and weird and for feelings to be hurt or for cues to be missed or misread. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Doesn't it seem crazy that there isn't like we learn how to act in a restaurant. We learn how to act shopping. We learn how to act when we stay at someone else's house for a sleepover, but we give them no scripts for like what to do in sexual situations. We just pretend that they're not going to do it or we show them like I, all I remember about sex egg was like hearing, uh, they showed us how to put a condom on a banana. Me too. I mean, yeah, I remember that, that too. Like, and then we talked, like the girls talked about periods and the boys talked about wet dreams. There was no female masturbation. There was nothing about female pleasure at all. Um, and there was nothing about, it was like you don't force, physically force someone. But beyond that, there was no guidance at all for how to navigate those situations. I seem to recall like sli a slideshow of like really horrific, like venereal disease yeah. Like, yeah. Like this is herpes. And you're like, oh, yeah. my God. You there know? was an infamous birth video. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Where Maybe they we... show like the baby crowning or something. Yeah. <laughs> right. It was like scared straight. Right. Which didn't, you know, scare anybody straight. And, and I should say, uh, you know, that it's important to note that the kinds of teaching and instruction that we're talking about apply to both you know, boys and girls, like, especially boys, maybe like, I feel like when I talk about like the despair that I feel, cause I've got a son as well, you know, it's like, I, I feel like, wow, we really are f 
we've really failed to educate boys uh, on like how to be in the world. Like it's hard not to come away feeling like that. Like men are, men are a mess, <laughs> you know? I mean, you know, yeah. I mean, you know, American culture is a mess. So we're all a mess, but, but I also think, you know, boys and men are also like patriarchy is bad for all of us. It's all bad for all of us. Like they don't have guidance. And I also will say like, I have some great men in my life. Like my brother is like a wonderful dude and father and partner. Like it's just, I, I don't, I, I, I don't think it's a hopeless project. You know, I think we're just starting from we just haven't done it. You know, we just like, haven't taken that on. It's interesting. I'm reading this book right now because I'm doing an event with this guy, but I strongly recommend it. It's called, um, father figure, how to be a feminist dad by this guy, Jordan Shapiro. And it's so good. And it's basically sort of like the conversation we're having, but about fatherhood and sort of how few models or like how few alternate models boys and men are given for like what role a father should play and sort of like the incredibly antiquated sort of stereotypes that were given and, and how little sort of education and resources are available for men when they're thinking about being fathers. And it's, um, it's great. Anyway, I, I strongly recommend it. And in reading it, I was like, Oh my God, it's true. I've like never even heard this conversation. I, you know, I don't have kids. I'm probably not going to have kids, but I've super enjoyed it. And, and it really has also just been like, Oh, right. Like we just kind of don't do anything. If we started doing stuff, I think things, things would change actually relatively quickly, you know, because, um, I don't think it's in boys or men's nature to like not pick up social cues or to be coercive or, you know, that's socialization. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. And I think like there's, I think there would be a, a lot of hunger among a lot of guys, myself included, for some instruction. I think that's what we're talking about here. It's like, <laughs> it's like, well, what do I do? I'll do it. Like, I want to do it. I want to do the right thing. Most guys, you know, most dads want to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I think there have to be like some honest conversations about the tension between like, what's the right thing? And like what your biology mm -hmm. sometimes is doing to you or telling you, you know, like, mm -hmm. I mean, guys are wired a certain way, um, that doesn't always, mm -hmm. um, you know, serve these situations all that great, you know? And mm -hmm. I don't mean to make excuses. I'm just trying to be real. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, like yeah. There, there has I to, there has to be like some way to like navigate the tension so that we can be honest about that and understand it too. And then also understand right. like, well, women are wired differently and they might be thinking or perceiving it this way. And then like, how can we language this so that, you know, nobody gets lost, you know, mm -hmm. or hurt. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And now there's a bunch of kids who are identifying somewhere in the middle and like, how do we, how do we make space for, for all of them? And figure out sort of a way of being that everyone can sort of follow and agree upon that keeps everybody safe. It's like, you know, I have a lot of natural drives. I'm, you know, I am a total addict. I've been in recovery for 17 years and there are a lot of things that I had to do to sort of reroute my compulsive instincts so that I don't just like 
shoot heroin all day or like just do everything until to the extent that it will kill me, you know, and it's totally possible, right? Like there are ways, you know, so many human drives that we have figured out how to sort of circumvent or work around or sublimate or whatever. And I think that's just has not really been our approach to this, right? It has been sort of protect and indulge or pathologize or capitalize on like never have we sort of taken on that project. I, I will say that I think the Unitarian Universalists, and I think I mentioned this in the book, they have an amazing sex ed program. It's called the OWL program, Our Whole Lives. And it's phenomenal. It is like the sex ed program that should be in public schools the country over, you know? Um, and I, I went to this like Unitarian summer camp that I also write about in the book a little bit. And I think some of that sort of approach to sexuality and gender and those kinds of interactions sort of uh, insinuated itself into, into me just through that experience. What so there it, are, what does it entail? Like the owl, like our whole lives? Like I think it just, um, you know, I read a lot about it when I was writing the book and I don't remember all of it now, but, um, but it's a lot of what we're talking about, like a really nuanced conversation about consent, honest conversation about masturbation and, you know, like also education for for, for all genders where it's like, you know, where we learn the anatomy for all kinds of bodies, not just ones that look like our own and sort of where pleasure comes from and how to set boundaries and what assault is and just like a real conversation that can actually guide um, the situations that we're going to find ourselves in. And one that is like not um, super euphemistic or shaming or even like hyper gendered, you know? Just like the way that we all are not we all, the way that some of us eventually come around and sort of figure things out and how we want to be and what feels good and how to listen to ourselves. Like it took me until I was almost 40 to sort of get to like not have sex. I don't want to have, you know what I mean? And so that was not a conversation that ever came up in sex ed. So I, I think it's like a more holistic sort of straightforward um, like what's the word I want to use, like tolerant or just like non-judgmental discourse around it. Well, and I think reading your book and reading parts of it that had to do with consent gave me pause as I thought about how much sex is had that is not truly consensual sex. If the definition of consent is like enthusiastic two-way, mm -hmm. like two, like willing it, but enthusiastic two-way participation uh, mm -hmm. like so much. And I'm as guilty of this, uh, as any guy or anybody who's been in a long relationship where like sometimes one partner is like really into it and the other partner just goes along. Some of that's like love and care, mm -hmm. but also it's like, Oh, like maybe like just chill, you know, <laughs> like is what I was thinking. Yeah. Isn't it sort of amazing <laughs> to think about like, like there are all these sort of narratives, like partly and, and a for all life stages. Like I remember when I was like an adolescent teenager, it's just like a thing that women say to each other that like sex isn't good when you start having it. Like it takes a long time for sex to actually get good. And to which I would say like, what if we just like didn't do it if it didn't feel good and we're like, okay, let's try something else. Oh, that feels good. Let's move further in that direction. Okay. I think I'm done now. Let's like circle back next weekend or whatever. And just did the things that felt good 
and made that the sort of project of early sexual experimentation, then like that story might completely change. And, and I would say like, you know, there's obviously different factors, but like, as like middle-aged adults and long-term committed relationships, what if we did the same thing and we're like, okay, like one of us is not that into that. The other is like kind of, but we feel like we should because we get along better after we have sex or whatever. Like what would feel fun or possible or makes us feel curious or, you know what I mean? And just like, what if we just decided that sex we don't want to have is unacceptable and we're not going to do it anymore at any age, you know? Yeah. It's like a radical thought almost, you know, right. In, in but like context. we could do that. Like it's not, it's, uh, and in some ways I think actually like being queer and having early sexual experiences with women and like mostly dating women for the last like 10 or 20 years, uh, has really facilitated that for me because there are so many fewer scripts and there's no like end point penetration. So like between two women, it really is sort of like, what do you like? What do you like? What feels good? How's this? You know? And uh, listen, I cannot, and not just with your book, but like with a lot of stuff that I've been reading, I cannot escape the notion that a most men are bad at having sex with women. (laughs) If the women's reports are any indication, (laughs) <laughs> um, and and B that women are better at having sex with other women than men are generally. Yeah, like, this is a hundred percent true. I mean, I've read the studies that show that lesbians have like three hundred percent more orgasms than straight women do in sex. But I don't think it's like. I think it goes back to the to sort of what we're talking about, where it's like men are not taught to value women's pleasure over their own ego, right? It's like they want to feel like they did a good job, but they don't want to have to figure out what a good job is like with this particular person because they haven't learned that. So, and I think with women, we are so socialized to be like, how do you feel? What's going on with you? Does that feel good? You know, like we're so sort of, um, you know, just brought up to be aware of other people and what's going on with them and to try to make them happy that you put two women in a relationship and like, it really works out for everybody. Right. <laughs> um, so I think everybody has to sort of be on that, you know, and sometimes it's more about the other person than, than the other person, but there's a sense of a kind of balance. And I don't think that's an essentially female characteristic. I think that's totally learned. Yeah. I will say that like, even and, you know, I'm, I'm sorry to have to say this on a, I mean, I've said it publicly before, but just like even the men, sensitive men who identify as feminists, I'm like, how have you never learned that this is bad kissing? Like, no one told you. Adult women in their third, nobody told you, you right. know? Right. Well, and the and, thing too, it gets complicated because, you know, you have like a quote unquote, uh, more feminized man, um, you know, somebody who's sensitive and somebody who's feminist and somebody who's genuinely interested in um female pleasure and all that kind of stuff some women don't want that oh yeah some women are like ooh, like you know be a man you know and then you're like well shit what do i you know like now i'm not masculine enough or i'm not tough enough or something so it gets complicated and you know i I guess it just comes down to like knowing your partner you just got to like get in get intimate and figure it out yeah it's true and i do think it's like uh, I mean, masculinity, that kind of masculine, like be a man masculinity is a kind of theater, right? That you can actually agree on and then enact it. And it's fun. You don't actually have to be totally out of touch with your feelings. And like, you know what I mean? I think, I don't know. And I, I do think if we did that work to sort of change ideas of masculinity and sex, like that would shift too, because we wouldn't be raised sort of fetishizing 
that kind of masculinity, right? Um, or just like at least understanding it as a kind of role play that we decide to enact with each other. But I think that's probably a few generations. We're not going to benefit from any of that. It's too late. We'll be old. We'll be like, yeah, you're going to, you're stuck in the contradiction for the rest of your life. Sorry. <laughs> it's too late for us. So I want to talk about body. That's a big, you know, it's a huge theme in the book. You write a lot about it. You write about your hands. You write about kind of going through puberty a little bit earlier, I think, than some of your peers and like how, like what a shift that is. And also, I don't know, like you just like, you're very uh, intelligent, uh, on the page when you like remember those times and you talk about like what it means. And it, again, you know, maybe it to, to a degree that it shouldn't have, it like made me pause and go, Oh shit. You know, like young girls really are from what 11 years old in this culture conditioned to be like anticipating male gaze or behaving or dressing or trying to appear a certain way to please the mm -hmm. boys around them or the men around them or whatever it is, you know? And, um, I don't know. It kind of, it's heartbreaking. And, and I think I never noticed your hands. I've been in a room with you, you know, I've never, I never looked at you and was like, she's got big hands. Your hands are fine. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm totally at peace with them now. And I, and I, I, I do have exceptionally big hands, but I mean, it's not like, I don't think other people notice unless they're specific, really looking. Um, and I think, you know, as adults, we don't really notice these things as much, but as kids, it's like anything that stands out. And as kids, we're just, we're in the sort of intro level, uh, sort of gendered ideas of attractiveness and sexuality. And it's really rudimentary, like everything's small and pretty and hairless and, you know, blonde and, um, is just sort of what you're supposed to be, or it was for me. And I think it still is to some extent, you know? And so then, and, and, you know, sort of couple that sort of like version of femininity and beauty with the, the profound aversion to being an outlier in any kind of way. And then suddenly like a body part that's bigger than everyone else's that also contradicts this idea of beauty is like horror show, you know? And I'd say, yeah. you know, it's interesting cause you're like measuring yourself against like boys attention uh, and expectations and the culture sort of like, you know, ingrained expectations, but there's also the issue of the social cues and feedback that you're getting from your female peers, which mm -hmm. I think in a lot of ways for adolescent girls can be every bit as intense as the feedback that they get from boys, if not more so. Like girls, mm -hmm. I don't know, especially mm -hmm. at that age, they, mm -hmm. re they really can be mean to one another. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's really intense. You know, it's interesting. Like, I, I, you know, I don't have answers for this. I'm not a scientist or a social psychologist or anything but I, I was talking to a friend of mine recently and and her kid is like I don't know nine or something and it's already sort of happening this like weird tribalism among children where it's like all the kids in the building are homeschooling and this one ringleader girl has decided that my friend's daughter is out and they just like torment her and um, and I don't know what that has to do with sort of biology and what it has to do with patriarchy. I don't, I don't, I don't know. So like, I do know that kids can be really sociopathic <laughs> in ways that I think probably have nothing to do with gender, but, um, 
But I do know also that one of the most effective sort of mechanisms um, of a dominant power structure is teaching the people who are subjugated by it to discipline themselves and each other, right? It's like the thing Foucault's, uh, you know, in Discipline and Punished, which I think I bring in later in the book, um, his sort of uh, writing about the panoptical panopticon and modern the modern prison system right where it's sort of if you can train everybody to um just to discipline themselves and to be constantly wondering and measuring and enforcing um whatever those values are both on themselves and on other people like that's how it gets done you know like boys don't really even have to do that much you know because the girls are like um, constantly looking down at their own bodies, at other people's bodies, comparing them and punishing folks who, who don't fit, right? Whether because they have more of whatever the valuable thing is or because they don't have enough of it, you know? And it's like now, especially writing this book, you know, I had a lot of body shame, disordered eating for decades. Um, and I think I got off like pretty easy in some ways because I had such a hippie mom and was queer. But when I go back and I think about the amount of time and energy that I spent uh, thinking about my body, wishing it was different, trying to like eat less or exercise more or whatever, or the, just the various sort of efforts and money spent trying to have a body different from the ones like nature gave me. If I could put that energy, it's so many books, Brad, I could have written so many more books. Right. I could have, I could have like six more degree. You know what I mean? Like it was so much energy. And I think where would that have gone if I wasn't doing that? Would it have been like learning a musical instrument? Would it have been, <laughs> I don't know, you know what I mean? But it was like a really, really high maintenance preoccupation. Yeah. You know, really yeah. Intense. Sort of like when I think about when I used to do drugs and, and drink before I got sober, I'm like, if I could have all the money back that I ever hustled to buy drugs, like I could buy a house with just that money. <laughs> it's amazing how much energy we can spend on you know, maybe suboptimal things. And mm -hmm. I think in my own life, you know, like I've spent a lot, I think we all maybe spend a lot of time and energy or most of us anyway, trying to deal with our physical appearance. I don't know. I'd have to, there's probably been a study done, but I wrestle with this a little bit because I will often argue like somewhat tongue in cheek that vanity is actually a, a good thing. Like a little vanity is good is what mm -hmm. I always say. Like mm -hmm. it gets a bad rap, but like you don't want somebody who just has like zero vanity, like who's just oh, like, yeah. fuck it, you know, like I kind of <laughs> think it's it's good to want to like take care of yourself a little bit. I mean, I say this and I'm like sitting here in my sweats. It's not like I'm some, you know. Yeah, no, I totally. This is a pro vanity household over here. Me and my partner are both like total clothes horses, like any number of sort of, um, you know, I feel like I take pretty good care of how do I want to say this? There's a lot of healthy things I do for my body that I do out of vanity and nothing else, but that happen to serve the rest of my body systems and my health. And so I'm really grateful for that. You know what I mean? Like I'm, I've been putting the sunscreen on for a really long time and wearing my own straw hat because I want my skin to look supple and nice, but it also has the positive consequence of preventing me from getting skin cancer. Right. Right. 
Right. So there's a lot of that. Like I, I have accepted that I, that my vanity and, you know, and I think in, in some ways, like one of the things that I was able to sort of tease apart when I was writing this book is like, what is vanity and the sort of pleasures and self-regulations that come out of that, that are not like longitudinally harmful. And then what is like body shame, which is like a whole other sort of category that I have like mostly let go of. Yeah. Yeah. That's like, it's like these fine lines, uh, you know, that you have mm-hmm. to sort of navigate. But um, I think that hopefully with age, you know, you get to a point in your life where you're able to sort of let that go. I think when I was a teenager, I mean, I, that's the time when I felt it the most, obviously, mm-hmm. right? I think we, we all feel it the most then. Our bodies are changing and I remember hating my nose and my feet were too big mm-hmm. and all that sort of shit, mm-hmm. you know? Doesn't it feel like sort of a cruel joke? Like I wouldn't go back. I wouldn't go back to any earlier age. I really like where I'm at now, but that sort of the like bad backs and like (laughs) that, all of that stuff. I'm like, if I could have like the mental freedom I have today with just like the vigor and energy and like lack of a need for orthopedic cushions in any situation, like (laughs) that real freedom yeah well you know that's the that's the cruelty of life i guess but uh i want to ask you about um the stalker essay Mm -hmm. that one really hit me uh it's like a really riveting read for i guess obvious reasons but the thing about it that hit me the hardest was the fact that you confronted your stalker and and just to give listeners you know who haven't had a chance to read like an overview um, Melissa had a guy in, this was in Brooklyn, right? Mm-hmm. Well, why don't you actually, why don't you tell? Because it's your story, you know, like give the overview. So I, um, I lived in this ground floor apartment. I was probably, I was like 24 maybe. Um, and, and it was on the block of a really busy train station and I had these street facing windows for my bedroom. Um, and this guy started coming to my bedroom window at night and like talking dirty in this horrifying kind of gross way. And the first time it happened, I went and got my two dogs and went outside and was like, what the fuck? And he proceeded to hit on me. And I was like, get out of here. I'm going to call the police or whatever. And then he kept coming back after that. Um, And it went on for like, I don't probably a couple months and maybe longer. Um, and I went, it was terrifying. And I, I did go to the police station and they basically laughed me out of there and was like, are you sure it's not your boyfriend? Um, and said, there's nothing we can do until he (laughs) like breaks in or assaults you. Um, yeah. And, and ultimately I ended up just moving sooner than I would have otherwise. And I, and I didn't, tell anyone about it except my roommate who lived in that apartment with me and I basically never thought or talked about it again for like you know 15 years and then it came up and I was like oh that is fucked up like why haven't I thought or talked about it and in fact I I told my partner about it this is before I wrote the essay I was thinking about writing the essay and I was like, you know, I was thinking about this experience where I had the stalker and, but you know, she's like, that's crazy. Like, how come you've never talked about that? And I was like, well, you know, it didn't affect me very much. And she was like, uh, 
you tape the curtains to the sides of the window and you won't even walk to the bathroom without a shirt on in the middle of the night with all the lights off. And I was like, Oh yeah. Yeah. Right. So these things are more traumatic than maybe we give them credit for. (laughs) Mm -hmm. The part that I think hit me the hardest was when you went out and confronted this guy Mm-hmm. And his response was like, hey, baby, <laughs> like, you know, like, you're like, hey, you know, you, you sick fuck. Like, what are you doing? You've got your pit bull, you know, and this uh-huh. guy has like so little like I guess what what shocked me again, maybe more than it should have is the fact that there are people who would honestly stand there and in all sincerity think like, this is my shot. Here she is. She must like <laughs> what I'm saying. This is poetry, baby. <laughs> and, and, you I know, got, I won't yeah. make you quote the guy, but I mean, the things that he was saying were like, just like graphic and not at all alluring, you know, like to say yep. the least. <laughs> yep. Yep. Oh. Yeah. It was totally. And you know, it's like at the time I was just, reacting. And I was like 24. I was newly sober. I was working as a professional dominatrix and it just, you know, the mind just blanches in it (laughs) to, I was like, this doesn't make any sense. And, And I'm putting words to it now. I did not have words to it. And I didn't really talk to anyone about it when it was happening. But I think as far as I can track my response now, I think I was like, this seems so bizarre and nonsensical that I must be wrong in some way, you know, like I must be misunderstanding what's happening. Like I do. So I just was terrified and slept with a dog in my bed for months, forever in that apartment. Um, and basically like sought never to live in a ground floor apartment ever again, you know? And it wasn't until I started writing the essay that I was like, what the hell possessed this man to think that that was a route to romance right? or anything. That's the question. Like, what the fuck? Like, how did this guy form? That's what I want to know. Like what? That was my sort of goal in writing the essay or that's what emerged. And I went, I was like, why did I never talk about this? And why have I not even thought about it? Why did I like stuff this in the attic of my mind? And also what possessed him? Um, And I went and I just like watched all the movies and these are the movies like of my childhood in many cases, all of them. I just like did a scan of all the media, like pop culture media I could find that had like peepers. And, and I was like, Oh, well that makes sense. (laughs) You know, where I was like, these movies are all romances or comedies. And then there are the horror movies, but even in the horror movies, it is sometimes presented as a romantic entanglement, right? Even when the female character is afraid for her life, she's still often strangely attracted. It doesn't preclude romance or sex with the stalker. And I was like, I don't know if he'd seen any of these movies, but clearly those movies are a product of our culture and they're perpetuating it. So in the end, it was like grimly obvious. Both of our reactions were sort of grimly obvious where I was like, this was horrifying and terrifying, but clearly this is like not a big deal. So I'm just going to like, you know, tough it out and move. Hmm. Yeah. I have just to let just so you know, this, this scene, like this confrontation scene stayed with me uh, so powerfully that I, I don't know where I was. Like I was either walking the dog, but like, I actually like played the scene out in my head where you mace the guy. 
Like I was, <laughs> I was like trying to like correct it. I was like, cause if the cops aren't going to do anything, mm-hmm. like you've got this dog, but like a guy like that, who's doing that. I don't know. But yeah. in, in the dream or in the like little yeah. like daydream, I was like, okay, so Melissa Mace is the guy. And then she has a friend who comes out and they hold him down. <laughs> maybe you rough him up a little bit. You know, he's got like a bloody nose and then the cops finally show up. And I was just and thinking. And they arrest me. <laughs> and they, that, that's what I was going to say. That's honestly where I got to, where I was like, but that wait a minute. Would, like if you said he was standing outside my window saying these things, it's your word against his. Like, would they have the grounds to even arrest him? Well, even like, where does the law fall? Because if he, is it like, is that even, is it against the law to stand outside someone's window and say disgusting, filthy things? Uh, I know that it's illegal to assault someone and mace them, you know? So I don't actually even know. Um, but it's funny, like even hearing you say this, it's like, this is the thing, right? That, that this experience sh- I'm putting quotes here should have been like kind of a high topography moment in my scary experiences in life. But I literally never thought about it after it concluded. It was just, I was like, there is no narrative from the cops, from the culture, from anyone telling me that I should be outraged and traumatized by this. And so I'm just going to like stuff it away and keep it moving. And so, you know, like there was this voice in my head when I was writing this book that was consistently piping up to say like nothing that bad ever happened to you. Who cares? This is self-indulgent. And I have a lot of experience writing about this kind of thing. So I was like knew how to keep writing and not listen to it. But, um, but when I think about the cumulative effect, like what that does to have an experience like that, many experiences like that and never really talk about it, never really process it, just keep it moving. It's like, Obviously, I had some shit to work out. Obviously, I had to write three books, <laughs> you know, right. circling around these topics because it doesn't go away. Like, that's a crazy thing to have had happened. Not not even thinking about the sort of like structures that it imparts to my own understanding that I bring to like relationships or sex or, in you know, walking down the street or, you know, the curtains in my bedroom. Yeah. Well, I think that... uh it's understandable emotionally to be a person who has something like this happen and to want to just like put it in the rearview mirror. Like that makes mm-hmm. a lot of sense to me. Mm-hmm. Like I, I can, mm-hmm. but not only because it's a shitty thing and who wants to sit there, you know, dwelling on it, but also because there's so much else coming at you. Like there's going to be something right. else shitty to take your attention, <laughs> right. you know? Right. I, and I'm... there's just like powerlessness is deeply uncomfortable. It's, Like that is a moment that I can really sort of only access in hindsight where it's like there was nothing I could do there. You know what I mean? Like the, the police, there was no help. It was just like, okay, so what do you, what do you do? Like nobody wants to sit in that feeling. Right. Yeah. But it is funny because when I was writing the essay, I was able to access a reaction. maybe similar to what you experienced reading it where like, I watched all these movies about peepers and stalkers and was like really going back and sort of recovering that experience in this granular way that, that emotionally I didn't even quite experience when it was happening. And I swear to you, I do not have like a general 
like negative response to men, just like in walking around and, you know, like I don't feel like I walk around seething with like resentment towards men. But when I was writing this essay, I did. <laughs> I was actually walking around sort of like a little shaken up soda bottle with like anger and fear where like every guy that got within like five inches of me, I just wanted to clock because I was like scared, like retroactively scared, but also just furious that I had been in that powerless position and that nobody could help me and there was nothing I could do, you know? Yeah. It's a violation. Mm -hmm. uh, you're making me like some of the things you've been saying to uh, both just a minute ago and earlier in our talk is, uh, it's like worth underlining again is how big of an impact I think like uh, entertainment culture, like movies, especially maybe music mm -hmm. videos, you know, generally generationally, mm -hmm. um, how big of an impact that that has on uh, kids perceptions, adults perceptions of like what the mm -hmm. boundaries are and how the world works. Like, I'll give you an example of like a like super embarrassing experience that I had where I was in a meeting in, in LA. It was like a Hollywood pitch meeting type thing mm -hmm. and was talking about like teen stuff. Cause I was writing like an adolescent comedy and it was just like a natural, like development executive talk. And they were like, so what kind of movies did you like when you were a kid in this space or something like that? And I was like, Oh, well, you know, the John Hughes movies, just the first thing that came to mind because it was like mm -hmm. it's like the most mm -hmm. culturally like oh, of course you know like yeah and and yeah. I, got, I got a cop to it i was like those, those were big movies for me when i was a kid i think a lot of us me too all of us yeah. yeah so this woman who was basically about my age maybe even a little younger she was like uh she's like she kind of grimaced and i could tell and i was like oh you don't like them and she's like well she's like my husband's asian and she's like and i was like i felt like the biggest asshole i was like oh yeah. right like and then I rewatched it and I was like, oh man, these movies have aged terribly. So badly. And Not to mention all of like what we, what now we identify as sexual assault and rape. There's tons of it that's what where I mean. they're like drunk girls and the nerd sleeps with her. And like, it's, it's really, really. And I know I loved, I was obsessed with those movies all the way through my twenties really. And then I was like, yeah, I know. I mean, so it's like, yeah, because 16 Candles, the nerd. Mm -hmm. And by the way, I was all throughout my childhood was always compared to Anthony Michael Hall. Like you look just like Anthony Oh, were you? Yeah. So like I re and I really internalized it because like when yeah. somebody when you're a kid and somebody's like, that's the famous person who you are. But like the nerd in Breakfast Club was me for yeah. better or worse. And, I, you know, but I mean, imagine I, I, I don't have any like specific memory of it. But imagine me at like age 12 watching 16 Candles. And like, oh yeah, like he, he just bangs the, the hot blonde who's in a blackout and like doesn't even remember yep. it, but then wakes up and is in love with him. Like that's basically the story. Yeah. Like you know? what a message. Yeah. What a message. I was like, so that's, and honestly, like, so that's yeah. how it works. And then like movies like Animal House, because oh, like, I, I just wanted to have fun. You know what I'm saying? Like I, mm -hmm. it was, it was an innocent impulse. It was like, oh, these guys are funny. You know, John Belushi's funny and. Yeah. All this stuff packed into my head really did shape as an adolescent how I sort of tried to build myself, you know, and mm -hmm. maybe to a degree that exceeds anything else. Like, I can't think of anything else. You know, nothing else comes to mind that exceeds it. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, me too. Those movies were huge for me. And going back, whoo, the racism, I didn't even see it for so long. And it's shock. It is not subtle. No. It is not subtle. Yep. I also, uh, I also grew up loving Breakfast at Tiffany's. Oh my which god! Which has the, the dual the Andy Rooney like, or is it Andy Rooney or what's his name? Yeah, Mickey, Mickey Rooney. Mickey Rooney. Andy yeah. Rooney, not the sixty Ooh. minutes guy. But the, no. <laughs> but, but yeah, I know, I know. It was just, I mean, in a way, it's like horrifying, but also heartening because I'm like, things really have changed. Right. Things really have changed, or even like the way that gay characters are represented, if at all. You know, it, they were not certainly not the stars. They were not sympathetic. Um, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I remember. Okay. So that's a good, that, that, that's a good moment to pause and like be a little bit optimistic because mm -hmm. if, 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 <laughs> I, if I'm saying, and if there's like some, at least loose agreement that like these cultural products have a huge impact, like the precise amount of impact we can debate, but they have a big impact. I think it is also true to say that things have changed for the better in terms of representation in cinema, it's getting mm -hmm. better, I think, in literature. Mm -hmm. I don't know. You know what I'm saying? I, I, I would have a hard time arguing that it's getting worse. Like, you know, it's definitely not getting worse. Um, certainly, yeah, I think over the course of my life, I have definitely seen, and this is one of the great benefits of the internet, too, is just that, like, kids. Like my friends who have adolescent or teenage kids now, those kids have grown up. They're like, what's the big deal? Like they have grown up with sort of gender nonconforming, trans, queer characters. Like they're on TikTok. They know so much more about, I don't know, we we are like hopelessly um, old and just, you know, old and a slow. lot of them just yeah, old and slow and with these terrible old ideas still stuck in our heads where a lot of them just, you know, I think when we were younger, there was no internet. It was like you learned it from your teachers or your classmates or your parents. And if it was, th those people did not know what was up, like neither did you. And it wasn't until we like moved out or like got some access to sort of other stuff. And now kids can find a community based on however they identify or however they're curious like as soon as they can get access to a computer. Yeah, that is good. You know, and I, I do have some hope, like just watching my kids, you know, the way that they, it, like nothing phases them. Like I think back to my high school experience, like there was like one out gay guy yeah. who I look back on with like, like reverence now because it was such a hard environment to be that guy. And he was from a family mm -hmm. of like, it was like a dynastic like sports family, like oh, all of his like father, uncle were like, wow. the, like sports heroes, you know, but to their credit, they totally embraced him. He was not like ostracized within his family. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I shouldn't speak with too much authority, but I just remember like, it was clear that he was out and mm -hmm. it was cool, mm -hmm. but it was also sort of like, uh, I don't know. It was very unique and a lot different than it is today in, in not so great ways. So, Anyway, we've come we've come a ways, and I, I want to be sensitive to your time, but I also want to talk to you about a couple other parts of your book before I let you go because mm -hmm. they're so good. <laughs> uh, Thank you. First of all, the cuddle party, mm -hmm. which is both like, I mean, like I, I was in a like a full body like 
cringe slash clench the entire time I read that. Like I cannot <laughs> think of anything for which I am more poorly equipped than a cuddle party. Like maybe to a degree that exceeds you. Cause I think you're in the same boat. I mean, most, <laughs> most sane people would be like, yeah. like at first blush, at least be like, I am not going to go into some loft in Manhattan and cuddle with strangers in my pajamas for an hour but um i i I definitely have the same response but but not everyone does okay but what's so fascinating is how much uh not like tidy resolution but how much like unexpected resolution there was for you i think as a person and as a writer in the experience but also for me as a reader like it's a very well sequenced collection like that that essay comes toward the end it brings a lot home it's like oh like what an unexpected place in some ways and like kind of a funny place to find all of these like really meaningful answers am mm. i on the right track i'm so glad that that was your experience because i it did seem that way to me and it's one of those things where it's like don't give me too much credit because i didn't strategize it and i had no idea that I was going to write that essay. I did not plan to write that essay. I went to the cuddle party just sort of out of my own curiosity, thinking I might write something entirely different that would not be in the book. And I think just because I was sort of in, I was like elbow deep in the past and all of these questions about the body and sexuality and boundaries and all of it that you know, you know how it is when you're writing a book or you're even just working on a longer piece. It's like, your whole psyche and I even become sort of oriented to the constellation of ideas and narratives that you're working on. And so I think I just got in that setting and it set off this kind of almost like I think of it like a little detective story where it just like set me off on this journey that really did sort of take me through so much of the stuff that I was working towards. And I don't know that that would have happened if I hadn't been writing all of those essays before it. Cause it, cause the book, the essays appear in the book roughly in the order that I wrote them. And so that was near the end of writing the book that, um, I don't know, it just may, gives me a kind of awe and trust in my own psyche, right? That if, that it will lead me artistically to the things that make sense in the order that makes the most sense. It will lead you to the cuddle party. <laughs> it was, you know, never in my life did I think that. Let me just tell you, like, uh, while I was writing that essay, I went to hang out with some friends in San Francisco, of course, and and there we had a little dinner party, and there were some folks who are, like, really active in, like, sex parties and the kink community and polyamory and, like, super, you know, sex positive, uh, sort of open-minded folks. And I was like, have y'all ever been to a cuddle party? And these people were like, oh, (laughs) (laughs) so it really is sort of like, it's only for those who need it. Right. And I don't think anyone else is interested. Okay. So, but like for those who are listening to us who might be like, what the fuck is a cuddle party? Like, Mm -hmm. let's break it down just so we get a clear picture of what the basics are. Like, why don't you take take the reins here? A cuddle party is basically like a, like a cuddle orgy. Um, but the way that it's set up, and this is really sort of baked into to the the foundation of it, um, is that there's a huge emphasis on enthusiastic consent, and there's basically like this orientation sort of workshop part of it that happens for about forty minutes before the cuddle party even begins. 
And that workshop is basically what I think should be in sex ed for kids. I was just thinking that. Right. I, I just it just flowered in my mind. I was like, oh my god, that they, they should do cuddle parties with that with those parameters in junior high. Kids would be so embarrassed, but it would teach them. <laughs> exactly. I was like, instead of having to undo and recondition myself, what if I had just been conditioned? to have these kinds of boundaries. And so like, you know, among the like 15 rules of the cuddle party are, um, if you're a yes, say yes. If you're a no, say no. If you're maybe say no. Um, which is like really something I wish I was taught as a kid. Like if you're not sure go with no. Right. Um, cause saying no is probably not going to cause lasting harm. Um, and then if you know, every progressive, form of touch you again need verbal consent right so like we're hugging and you want to like then rub my back you have to ask again and I have to verbally say yes before you can do that um and the response when people say no to something is you're supposed to say thank you for taking care of yourself and this is like the most important part to me and the most radical part and the part that i think actually would help kids so much um and this is the part i think you know for boys and men is like that we're just not teaching them and they're not taught is to respect and honor other people setting boundaries and to not take that personally you know and so you do these role plays where you say like do you want to cuddle no Thank you for taking care of yourself just with the person next to you. Um, and then it's sort of like open cuddle for about an hour after that. And there's like snacks and you're not <laughs> supposed to wear anything kind of sexy. Everyone's in sweats or pajamas. And I'm, I'm picturing um, I'm picturing like some stranger like spooning me from behind, but like also eating a baby carrot. That's like my version. <laughs> <laughs> the snacks stayed in the kitchen. Oh, good, good. Um, but yeah, I definitely can sort of speak to the experience of being spooned by a stranger. And, you know, like, you know, of course, what happened to me was that I went there and ended up even after the workshop cuddling with people I didn't want to, um, which is what set me off on this whole sort of detective story of like, why the fuck did that happen? Yeah, <laughs> you yeah, know, why right? did I do that? Yeah. Well, yeah. that's fascinating. I mean, good for you for like, I think too, it like made me think like, God, you got to be more courageous in life. You only live once. Like, I don't know if I'm going to do a cuddle party, but it's like shit yeah. like that, especially as a writer, like going out and being experiential about it instead of just like standing at your treadmill desk and, you know, like reading. No, you know, it's funny because I'm more conservative now than I've ever been in terms of like what I'm up for and what I'm curious about. But there just always has been a very like I'm interested in intense experiences. And luckily, I think I've exhausted my curiosity about like dangerous intense experiences but there really is like it's even now and this was just like in 2017 when I went to the first cuddle party like a friend sent me the link and said this seems like something you'd be interested in haha -ha, which was mostly a joke and I had such an intense aversion to it that I was like we should go <laughs> <laughs> and that, that was my response where I'm like wow it's a real sort of anthropological like and, and part of it is a little bit of like writerliness where I'm just like, and, and not in the sense of like, oh, that would be an interesting essay as much as just, um, I don't know, this lifetime of reference that when I have most of my work has come out of me doing weird shit that seems partially unappealing, but like whatever that impulse is that draws me towards something that also feels abhorrent it's it's 
I've just learned like that friction means that there's something there for me. There's yeah. like some sort of like intellectual, psychological, physical, some kind of work that's there for me. The same way that like, you know, when you meet a person and you have an instinctive, like either, Oh, I like that person. I'm drawn to them or an instinctive, like, Oh, I hate that person. You know, like that. I, I know to track that back to myself. Like there's something in my history that's being agitated or chafed against by that has nothing to do with actually with them, you know? Right. Yeah. No, I, I, I kind of, I go back and forth sometimes with myself. If I have a person who I have like a strong aversion to, mm-hmm. like sometimes there's like a trans, they've transgressed, at least from my perspective. And it's mm-hmm. not like some big crazy fight or something. It's just more like, you know what? I don't want to have this person in my life. Um, yeah. I mean, some people just suck or they're, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, or yeah. Like, some people are just bad. Um, but I mean, even when it's like, I have a weird aversion to people who are like me, like a lot of my closest friends, when I met them, I've been like, Oh, what did I feel like? I have a thing about this person kind of, you know, and often it's just like, I'm sort of repelled by my own qualities. And I also am sort of repelled by people who are entrenched in things that I have conscientiously outgrown. Right. So like I have this weird reaction cause like I consider myself recovered from having eating disorders, but like a lot of women my age continue to have disordered eating and I have a really strong response to it where I want to like make them eat or I want to like run away from them. Um, and you would think I would be more sympathetic and if I get to know them, I am, but there's like that first response is like, Oh, you know, because yeah. I think I'm scared of it. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, that's kind of what I was gonna, what I, what I was trying to get at is like that when you have an aver, like you have aversion to somebody, trying to like figure out if it's for like a, a genuine reason, or if mm-hmm. it's because they activate, like you say, something inside of you that you'd rather not look at. Maybe it's a little of both sometimes, but mm-hmm. I can easily, I can easily find myself just being like, yeah, fuck that person. I can't deal. Like, I don't wish them any harm, but like, I just, I'm drawing a line. Like, I don't want this person in yep. my, in mm-hmm. my life. And then mm-hmm. thinking, out, thinking it over and being like, well, why, you know, oh, well, this person said this, you know, there's always a story like said this or right. did this and it activated this. There's always some of me in there is the point. Yeah. It's yeah. All my own, like my own shit. It. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that that person should be in my life, but it is fruitful, I think, to sort of follow that trailhead of reaction back to myself just to like make more transparent what my reactions are about. Yeah. So last thing I want to talk to you about is France because we share like France and then also I think like ritual, mm-hmm. uh, like ritual slash maybe like a little bit of austerity. I think that for somebody who's in recovery from uh, substance abuse, I think some enforced austerity is a good thing. Um, Mm -hmm. So I don't mean austerity in the pejorative sense, like exclusively, but Mm -hmm. I think we are personality types who might take to that sort of thing, maybe more than others. Like I share that with you, like the exercise, the rituals. Um, But you were in in Paris in 2001. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was there in... 2000. I lived there for four months in the year 2000. So I was there, I was there the year before you at, you know, basic time. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then on a previous trip, like just post-collegiate sort of like backpacking trip around Europe, I met these girls when I was in Spain who were sisters. And 
like it was I was like what I was 21 first time in Europe I you know my head was swimming and mm-hmm. these girl like these one of the girls in particular I was like she's so cute she's French and blah 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 and I was like couldn't speak like very good French at all mm-hmm. but like was able to communicate enough with them where they, were, where they were like you know later on your trip come stay with us we live in France you know in the south of France in Cassis oh so I went and stayed with them I actually went back in 2000 and stay with them again but i've spent a lot of time in cassie and i've i think i've done the same hike that you did up into the uh Le mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. beautiful just beautiful so like i read those essays oh, with like a lot of affection and sort oh of like, that's great yeah. that's great yeah if any if you've been to cassie like it's not a big place so like everything i describe in there is super identified i had a friend who had a a whole semester long residency at the same place where i was um and I actually sent her the essay to be like, first of all, she's fluent in French. I was like, check my French. And then let me know if this all sounds accurate to you. And she had the same response where she's like, oh, Cassie. Yeah. Um, it's, sort it's, of like, interesting... it's, it's sort of like a hidden gem. I feel like everybody knows like Ken and everybody knows Nice. And, you know, you have like sort it's of the. Where, yeah. It's like where French people go to vacation. It's not because it's also not super rich the way that like, um, what's it called like the way because technically it's part of the french riviera but it's not like the places where there's like crazy yachts and right uh hyper wealth happening it's more like where like middle class french families go on vacation or whatever but it's just like so unbelievable like exquisitely beautiful it's just like i can't even believe every time you walk out of your door what you're looking at it's crazy so i'll share a couple of funny hopefully semi-fun like funny memories the first is that the girl that I was like, I had a crush on, I like the language barrier was just too much. Like there was nothing happening. I, and I was too, I don't have any game. I never did. I never will. But I remember like waking up and like being in their living room and like turning on CNN international because like it was the only English language channel. Mm-hmm. It kind of gave me like, you know, cause it's such a frustrating thing to be two dimensional really in, especially for yeah. somebody who's writerly. Like yeah. I could oh, just be like, agony. it is good. Uh, I like it. I am happy. You know, like you're, you're so reduced and it's really true. So I'm sitting there, I'm like having like a bowl of cereal. I think I recall, or no, I wasn't, I was sitting there with maybe like a coffee. And then the girl that I had a crush on walks in with like, without like a care in the world, like no self-consciousness at all in her underwear, eating a bowl of cereal and just like walks up to the stereo and turns on that Daft Punk song around the world and just starts <laughs> and just starts like dancing, like dancing, like oh uninhibited, like, 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 a you know, she was like 18 years old, 19 years old. And oh I'm sitting God. there just like, I like, do I dance? Like, I, I totally, <laughs> totally didn't. And of course I didn't. I just like sat there and like, just, I don't know what I did, but just like died inside and. Honestly, it sounds like it's a scene like, I mean, this is like, just not harken back to our earlier conversation, but just like a John Hughes movie about the like, just <laughs> the like, young American dude, like, here's your European experience. Yes. It was so, <laughs> so awkward. I mean, like, hopes were thwarted. It was still a great time there, though. And like, they took me on that hike to uh, the Kalanks and it was me and like, we met all their friends. And of course, again, like, I'm such a newbie, like, it's my first time in Europe. I, I you know, I... I wasn't completely unaware of what to expect, but like I'm there and it's like me and like 10 like young girls and we're all at the Kalank and we're all like sitting on those rocks on the, you know, the cliff sides. It's not mm-hmm. like a 
it's not like a sandy beach, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But like all these topless girls, and we're trying to swim, and I can't speak English, and I'm oh trying, to, I'm trying to hang. That was my experience. So anyway, uh, I want to talk about your experience, <laughs> uh, because I feel like that's the other thread. Like you know, you're sort of. It felt to me as I got towards the end of your collection, like you were tying up some threads. The mm-hmm. cuddle party tied up uh, threads having to do with consent body mm-hmm. male female interaction male gaze mm-hmm. like those kinds of mm-hmm. boundary issues uh i felt like the F- the france episodes were about substance abuse and addiction mm-hmm. you know and you do a really beautiful job of sort of like braiding um you know your experiences in 2001 which were when you were still using and mm-hmm. you, it's kind of a sweet love story between you and this uh i think he's a gay guy named ahmed mm-hmm Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and you guys kind of found each other. It's amazing that you found each other, uh, in some ways, you know, truly. And then you're in Cassie on like a writing fellowship a few years later or many years later. Um, yeah, a few years. It, that was in 2018. Okay. So you're kind of jumping back and forth in time and sort of taking a look at yourself and how you've changed. But it felt to me like you were kind of, um, I don't know, working towards some kind of resolution mm-hmm. when it comes to to substance abuse and addiction and how that relates to how you relate to yourself, both like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. emotionally, spiritually, physically, like all of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that one felt very much. And again, like this was not an essay I planned on writing, but I was in the midst of writing all of this stuff. This I wrote that essay in between the sort of two cuddle parties, you know, so it was just like all the stuff in the book was sort of in my mind when I went on this trip and I had just had uh, this really intense sort of like lower back event. Um, and, and in some ways now the way I think of that essay is like, okay, so I've gone back to the past. I've looked at the harms. I have acknowledged how I've been hurt. I've sort of recovered myself psychologically, emotionally. I figured out how to have boundaries. Like, how do I, what do I do now? Like, how do I now move through the world? What does it mean now that I have a a degree of bodily sovereignty that I've never had before and self-acceptance and like emotional care for myself? What does that look like in practice? Like, how do I actually care for myself, for my body, for like, how do I exist in my body in the world in a way that reflects this kind of healing and wisdom that I've accrued over these many years of recovery and sort of self-transformation and reflection. Um, and, And basically sort of the answer to that is like one sort of an overarching kind of tenderness and attention to the self and the body and to social interactions and like just like caring for myself the way that I would any other human and body that I love, which is to say like looking at what they're comfortable with, asking if they need a break, like making sure their needs are met. Um, and then also, uh, sort of how do I keep the parts of my personality that have run amok in the past? Like how do I keep them within a realm of safety and care? Right. And, and what this maybe is, is, is broaching sort of your other topic of sort of, um, you know, it could be asceticism, but for me in the essay, I describe it as my modules, which actually my partner coined, which is like, what do I need to do to maintain my sanity and health 
both mental and physical. And for me, as it turns out, it's I'm very high maintenance. It's a lot of things. I was going to say, okay, because this is how I feel about <laughs> myself. I look at what my routines are and I can often be self-critical because I have read and I personalize mm -hmm. everything. I probably shouldn't be like this to such an extent, but I remember reading something by a, a female author where she was writing about her ex and mm -hmm. how he was like really into meditation, like ding, that's me. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, whatever it was, like yoga, running, whatever it is, you know, and, and how he sort of like weaponized these things or she really like loathed him for that because it, to her, it was like a very selfish thing. And it was like a way for him to sort of, I don't know, mm. there was a power imbalance and yeah. it, was, it was a yeah. negative thing. And I was like, oh my God, like, I get up, I go right out to the garage and I have to sit. I, I don't have to, but I like to, and I kind of need it. Mm -hmm. And I have to exercise after that. Mm -hmm. um, I don't like, you know, where I guess our paths diverge. Like I have not um, been in 12 step. So you go to a meeting and then you said, I think the other part of it is like a meaningful interaction with a friend, which I should mm -hmm. do. Now I'm going to add that mm -hmm. to my shit. Cause that actually sounds healthy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> But like you were, I think the the point that I want to get to, uh, and then I'll let you take it, is like how I think you were talking to your partner and, and you were basically in agreement that like, this is what I need to do. Otherwise, I will be an entirely different person. Yeah. That hit home with me. Like if I don't yeah. do these things, I feel like the way that I described them to myself is like they're foundational. Yeah. If I don't do the sitting, if I don't do the exercise piece, then I lose my foundation and I'm mm -hmm. not... It's not to say that it makes me perfectly well behaved, um, but it makes me, I think, way more consistent and way mm -hmm. better able to give than I otherwise would be. Mm -hmm. um, not just in familial relationships, but just in as a person in the world. Yep, exactly. I mean, it's like, you know, these are the things that I think if we've been doing this kind of work or interested in it, we where we get to. Like, you actually sound like someone in one of my 12-step <laughs> meetings where it's like, I, and, and, you know, just to go back to sort of what we were, you were saying about that guy, anything could be weaponized. A person who weaponizes things can weaponize anything, you know, like, uh, so I would just, you know, meditation is not, you know, it is a practice, an ancient practice that goes way beyond like any single gaslighting, you know, controlling personality. You know what I mean? Like I've met people who could, who could use anything for ill. Right. I just, um, I just don't want to be like the asshole Buddhist. <laughs> I think, I think the fact that you're concerned about that is the answer that you need. Like the okay. person who's doing that is not concerned about that. Um, and, and I, and I feel about it very similarly where like sometimes, uh, I don't know, you know, okay, this is going to be a long route to talking about this, but my partner recently made a pie chart of everything that's important to her, like the major categories of how she wants to spend her life's time and what they break down to. And <laughs> this is what her pie looks like. She's a very different personality type than me in most ways. 50% of the pie is like relationships, friends, family, primary partnership, just like social relationship interaction, right? Um, 45% of it, no. Is that right? This is horrible. So embarrassing. Anyway, something like 40% of it is, uh, 42% of it is making art. 
and all the things related to that that have to do with like being a writer and a poet and and how that integrates with other things and then she's got 10% left it's 40% 10% left is for our job we both teach in the same english department 10% is for the job and 7% of that is teaching 3% is like the other nonsense, um, administrative stuff. And she's like, that's how mine breaks down. And I was like, I think mine is somewhat similar. And she was like, oh no, <laughs> yours is like, uh, you know, uh, 20% or 10, 15, no, she, this is what she said. Sorry. I'm totally fucking this up. I should have thought about it ahead of time, but she was like, all right, 15% for the job, 10% for teaching 5% for other stuff. And she was like, the whole rest of the pie is your like self-care modules and everything else that matters to you is actually distributed and entangled with all of those things. And I was like, whoa. And she was like, so making art, like you actually spend more time, much more time writing than I do. Um, and you spend even more time like talking to your friends, but it's all folded in to like meaningful contact with friends, 12 step meetings, exercise, like writing, like those things are all woven through because you have such a commitment to all of the things like your modules basically, which are like meditation or spiritual practice, exercise, my creative work, you know, meaningful interaction with friends. Um, and exercise. Yeah. And the, yeah. And so they're all woven in because if I don't do those things, I'm fucked. Like not only will I sort of relapse and just be a heroin addict again, probably, but like if I'm doing all of those things or at least like, you know, three of them in a day, um, I'm generally like, I wake up cheerful and I'm in a good mood almost all the time. I'm like, super, I'm just like a nice person who's like really easy to deal with and very reliable, motivated. Like I don't, I'm like not depressed, you know, or hyper self-centered. But as soon as I start sort of falling off on those things, things start to change. And she kind of didn't believe me when we first got together. And then she saw what happened. It's yeah. <laughs> like, cause occasionally you know, like this, it's like life gets crazy. Work gets really demanding, like health stuff happens and I can't do that stuff. And suddenly it's like, like when I'm in a bad mood, it's a little bit scary for her because it just doesn't happen very often, you yeah, know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you learn by, I think if you're anything like me, you learn by trial and error. Like yeah, I didn't get as disciplined about all this stuff in one fell swoop. It was like, you know, you try it, you fall off and then you go, wait, like two weeks later, you're like, oh, I'm an asshole or I feel like shit, yep. I, you know, yep. let me go back to trying that again. And then like, eventually it's like, you know, you just decide, okay, I just going to make this a permanent piece. Yeah. And it really is what you said where it's like, I don't know. Uh, I do think it's, it's a privileged way to live. Like I have the space that I can do that stuff. Not everybody can, but I do know for a fact that exactly to the extent that I am you know, performing these maintenances regularly on myself? Am I available to my students, to my partner, to society at large, to like a deeper, more socially conscious investigation of whatever I'm writing about? You know, like I am no good for anything. I am not a, a useful member of society if I'm not doing that stuff. Okay. You know? So all the different pieces that you describe, everything from meditation to running to 12 step to meaningful interaction with friends, I would even then creative, I, I would put mm -hmm. like writing and reading mm -hmm. all of the, all of mm -hmm. those things could feasibly to me come under the subheading of spiritual. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's like the binding thread through all of them. It's like a way of tending to your spirit. 
Yep. Uh, that's how I would conceive of it for myself anyway. Like all of that totally. stuff is about trying to strengthen myself and like nourish yeah. myself or heal myself that way. Absolutely. Um, so here's my question. Mm -hmm. What's up with people who don't need that shit? Like, like what, why do we need so much? Like, is there something wrong with me? <laughs> you know, like... I honestly think that we all need it. I think we all need it. And some of us are more in touch with it than others, you know, like spiritual practices. Like we're talking about bodily activity, social activity, you know, so-called spiritual activity. Like these categories are false. They don't really, they're just for us to sort of understand, uh, you know, humans love to categorize things. Right. And I think our society is so compartmentalized that we have these things in different categories, but it's a holistic way of life that is like connected socially, that is connected physically, that is connected in terms of like what we call spirituality. I think those practices and those like needs go back as far as human memory is recorded. You know what I mean? Like these are the things that people need to do in order in a rough way to be happy and feel fulfilled. And we live in a fucked up society where that's not really possible for a lot of people. And I think as a result, we have a lot of agents in our society that just are for muffling those needs, right? So like the people who don't need it, like who who are they and what are they doing? It's like, I think people who are sort of hyper fixated on money or uh, watch a shitload of TV, it's like if you take those things away, the things that mute our inner voices, then those needs would rise up to in their place. I really sort of believe that. And and I do think there are people like I am, a, we're artists, we're fucking sensitive. I'm an addict. Like I'm definitely on the way higher needs end of the spectrum, but I do think everybody needs that kind of stuff. We really do. Yeah. I tend to you know? agree. I think like I, I sometimes try to imagine the future, especially through you know, the lens of climate change, which I worry about maybe too much. I don't know if you can worry about it too much, but it just, it's always on my mind. Like, what is the future going to look like for my offspring? And I think about all, you know, you can point to any number of like societal ills. And I'm like, well, it feels like we need radical change in the way we conceive of ourselves as individuals, but also how we organize ourselves as a collective, you know? Mm -hmm. And it, it's not easy. Like you talk about the element of privilege when it comes to doing these things. Uh, you have to flag that. A lot of people don't have time for this shit. They're like, I don't mm -hmm. even have 20 minutes to sit on a cushion, you know? Right. Um, though I guess there's a counter argument that's like, well, you can meditate while you're walking. You can meditate while you're doing the dishes. You know, there's mm -hmm. always that. But it, it should be said. Like some people's lives are mm -hmm. so heavily scheduled and they're just trying to survive that they can't do it. And even yeah. for people who are in privileged situations – the way that society is built, there's not a ton of obvious space for people to take care of their spirits. You know, mm -hmm. it's not designed for that. And I guess what I'm wondering, or like the, maybe the more idealistic part of me imagines a future where there's going to be pushback. I think eventually there mm -hmm. are going to be communities that like intentional, more intentional communities that form mm -hmm. where people can offer that like not just to mm -hmm. themselves and to one another within the community but as a living example to everybody else to a degree that we don't currently see i don't know if i'm describing mm -hmm. this well but like i think of like yeah maybe eastern cultures where you have you know m more spirit like more overt spiritual community lay mm -hmm. people interaction 
Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Do you see the future I'm imagining? I do. I do. I do. And I hope, I hope you're right. Maybe I'm I also think it's totally like, wrong. <laughs> I also do think it's like, you know, there, there's a factor that's particularly relevant in the United States, which is our relationship to capitalism and industry and sort of the workaholism that's everywhere here, you know, where it's like people don't have time because we have this weird, what we worship as industry, you know? Um, and like, I remember when I found out that people in Europe, like the French, for instance, everybody gets a month off in the summer. They're just like, there's no inherent value to overworking the way that there is here. So I really, I really, I really hope that you're right. I really do. You know, and I love this idea of, you know, I just finished, I'm, I'm about to hand in edits on this little craft book that I wrote and, and the sort of, I would say like the primary argument of it is exactly what you're talking about where I'm like, how do I write about what writing means to me? And I'm like, I can't separate it from the spiritual, the social, the political, the physical, like it is integrated into all of those things because all of those things are integrated for me. And that's my goal is to ever more integrate them. Like that is the kind of life that I find most satisfying. And it is in, you know, it is totally contrary to so much of how human civilization now manifests itself, you know? Um, and I don't, I don't see myself living in a spiritual commune, but I do understand the appeal, you know, I do hope that that's more of an option. Yeah, more I of think, an, opting out is more of an option. I think that two generations. Yeah, I think that uh, like what I'm because I think you know, the spiritual commune or the remote monastery or nunnery or whatever you know these things happen out in the country. Mm-hmm. What I'm imagining is that there's going to be a more integrated thing happening. That's not going to mm-hmm. be exactly that. It'll be something new, and it's going to be enmeshed in ur- more mm-hmm. urban and suburban society. Mm-hmm. You know, so that there's more interactivity and it's not, it's not at a, like, it's such a remove, you know, it feel, to the point where like, if you go there, it feels like it's not even the world, <laughs> right? you know, right. Um, right. so we'll see. I mean, I, I could be totally wrong. We could just go in the tank as a species, but it just feels like we need change agents in our country and in our world and in our culture that go beyond and like one or two or three individuals or like a specifically or a particularly powerful individual life force or teacher. I think we need like communities of people who start Mm -hmm. to work against like hyper capitalism and who who like live and demonstrate different ways of being. I guess that's what I'm hungry for anyway. I think all of us feel ground down or most of us yeah. feel ground down by it, whether we know it or not, you know, the system is not necessarily great for people as it turns out. Yeah. <laughs> unless, yeah. unless well, you hit it rich, I guess, you know, get, get to work on your kids. Yeah. <laughs> kids, this is your task. <laughs> Create a better world for dad. No pressure. Their mission sooner rather than later. Um, I want to circle back real quick and just ask you a, a little question for my own curiosity. Cause you were talking about how you have sort of your like modules and how meaningful interaction with friends is like not among them, but maybe should be. And my thought is, is that, what the podcast is yes. because like I would qualify this conversation as meaningful contact with a friend, like having an honest conversation with someone I respect in a way that activates my thinking. Yeah. I mean, it might be like really sad to admit this, but like, this is the bulk of my social life. Like 
I don't. Your social life is deeper than most people's <laughs> in that case. Well, I hope so. Probably. I mean, I hope it's I hope it suffices. I have a very like vibrant, busy, crazy family life, you know, with all that that entails. Um, you know, I don't feel like isolated, but I'm I'm a writer. I'm happy to be alone in my garage with my books and working. Um, mm -hmm. But you know, going out to a bar, I don't have a. T I mean, I have some f good friends. I'll do stuff, but like just the logistics of doing shit in L.A. socially it's a pain in the ass. And by the time it hits like eight o'clock at night, I'm usually tired. You know, it's just, too, but I don't even have children. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you just, it just gets hard. Like it gets hard, like logistically for a lot of reasons to be social in the way that I was say in my twenties and right. my tolerance. Like, so then the opportunity becomes like, well, then you're going to go to a, like a kid party and you're right. going to like drink like white wine, you know, with parents in the backyard while the kids play. And, what I find is that like, sometimes that's great, especially if the conversations are like this, but how mm -hmm. often are the conversations like this, either because it's a quick, you know, party birthday party, and then you're gone or you barely know the person and they're just not that game for it or the kids mm -hmm. are constantly interrupting you. So mm -hmm. I guess what I'm saying is that like my hunger is for meaningful conversation. And I guess that I sometimes worry that like this show is too much too much about me in that way um and also that it might indicate that like i have control issues because what i find is that i'm quote unquote addicted to doing this show precisely because i can control the environment mm -hmm. there's no phones <laughs> um it's one-on-one -on -one. there's no other people to interrupt and i know that i'm talking with somebody who's like a thinky you know, it's a writer. It's yeah. My, so yeah. You're screening heavily screening. Yeah. So it's like, it's like, <laughs> and it's an ideal, you know, usually the person's like really bright and interesting and like mentally activated. And I don't know, it's like a hard thing to like give up. And it's also a hard thing to find like an equivalent for in like the rush of ordinary yeah. existence. I don't think that seems like you're framing this as a problem, but I don't think it seems like a problem. I think it seems absolutely resilient and it's an adaptable, like you've adapted to your psychic, emotional, intellectual needs within the context of your life. It makes perfect sense to me. And, and in fact, it's an example of like how part of what I was talking about, like, I don't have time to get all my needs met in separate categories. There's just not enough time in life for me to do that. So I have to combine them. Like every Friday afternoon at five, I have a meeting, a Zoom meeting with three of my closest friends who also all happen to be sober. And we go around and have a super honest check-in, just like an AA meeting. <laughs> and then we just talk shit for like another 20 minutes. And I, if I were to like have a separate phone call with each of those people, it would happen like twice a year. You know right. what I mean? But like combining those things, going for a walk with a friend, being part of a, I also have a weekly meditation group. So like my social needs are all folded into my other needs because there are too many demands on our time. You know, mm. there's just too much. Women, so women are better, I think. I think at, great at, job. But women are better at organizing those kinds of group chats and Zooms and shit yeah. like that. Like you guys are good at being like, let's check. If I was like, hey, guys, let's all check in. They'd be like, whatever, dude. Are you okay? <laughs> <laughs> What's wrong See, with you? <laughs> that's, that's why we need to take this 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 take on this project of revising ideas of masculinity. Because I, those dudes need to check in. Yeah. 
we all need to check in, right? I mean, mm-hmm. we're going through some shit together, like not just with the pandemic, but just in general. <laughs> in an ongoing way, for sure. And for sure. last thing I'll say is that I am also, I go through this every time I talk to somebody who is in recovery from, uh, you know, substance issues, how jealous I am at AA or at whatever, you know, I know you're not supposed to yeah. talk about it, but yeah. the the framework that it provides the regular social framework and spiritual mm-hmm. framework. Uh, I always think like it's and, and, yeah. and the way that it functions as like a place for honest testimony, non-judgmental witness. Mm-hmm. Uh, like Kurt Vonnegut used to call it the best church in America. I think it's mm-hmm. kind of true. It's like what church should be. Absolutely. And Absolutely. So I, I don't envy the troubles that, got you into it. You know what I'm saying? I know there was a lot of mm-hmm. suffering that led you to, to be there. Um, but I, in the funny, you know, the kind of funny way I, I find myself en- envying yeah. people who I have totally get it. I pity people who don't honestly, <laughs> <laughs> like, and I will say at this point, like I can only say this on the other side of having survived it. It was worth it. It's worth the trouble. It was worth the, the trouble that led me here because it really, is it taught me at a much earlier age than I ever would have gleaned this from simple experience, how valuable and important it is to combine, to have a holistic relationship to the spiritual, to have it be community, personal growth, uh, witness and testimony, service, all of the things that churches purport to be about and so often are mingled with like a lot of other shadier stuff. Um, or dogmatic stuff. It just, it taught me how to live at, in a way that it would have taken me decades longer to figure out. So, um, yeah, I, I feel exactly the same way you do. Well, I love talking with you and I, I really enjoyed your book. Um, I feel like I've been, you know, over these past many years on a kind of like a, a journey with you and I congratulate (laughs) you. It's a, it's a great accomplishment. And I know you, you know, you're taking off to go out of town tomorrow. So thank you so much for taking the time, um, you know, when you probably should be packing. Oh, thank you so much. I I was so excited at the prospect of talking with you. It really does feel like, I'm like, where's Brad? Why hasn't Brad emailed me? Like, (laughs) have I even published a book if I don't talk to Brad after I publish a book? So it's, it's really good to have this like slow motion friendship with you where we just have like a really deep check-in every three or three to seven years. That's like, yeah, that's like... That's like that, that's how it works with me. Every three to seven years, we check in. We're good. <laughs> All right. Well, listen. Uh, congrats again. Safe travels. Thank you. Take care, Brad. Okay, folks. There you go. That is Melissa Phoebos, and her new essay collection is called Girlhood. It's out there now on Bloomsbury. It is a national bestseller. If you want to find Melissa online, her uh, website address is melissafebos.com. She's also on social media. Track her down on Facebook, on Instagram, or on Twitter. Her Twitter handle is at Melissa Phoebos. Once again, the book is called Girlhood. National bestseller, essay collection. Go get it right now. Get yourself a copy. Read it. It's great. The Other People podcast is offered freely. The entire archive of this show is available free more than 700 episodes all of it 700 plus conversations with all kinds of different writers everybody from george saunders to cheryl strade roxanne gay susan orlean hilton owls otessa moshfag jonathan franzen you name it all of it is available for free it's a listener supported show 
If you like the program and you get something from it and you have the means, support the show. Tip your server. You can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod, patreon.com slash otherpplpod. For as little as a dollar a month, you can support this show. There are different tiers, different levels of support. As you go higher up, you can get things. You can get a t-shirt, a sticker, a book club subscription, a tote bag, a coffee mug. I'll write you a letter or a postcard. I'll wish you a happy birthday. All that stuff. Patreon.com slash other pod. The Other People podcast drops every Wednesday. Occasionally there's a Sunday episode, but new episodes go live every single Wednesday. You can listen in all the usual places. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, etc. If you have something you want to say to me, the email address for this program is letters at otherppl.com, letters at otherppl.com. This show also has its own official app, the Other People with Brad Listy app. It too is free. Go get the app wherever apps are available. Next week on the program, next Wednesday, my guest will be Barrett Swanson. He's got an excellent new essay collection out called Lost in Summerland. Stay tuned, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs>